We're reading together from Mark chapter 14, reading at verse 12. Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where would you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a water jar will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, Furnished and ready, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread And after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of God. Christianity doesn't fit into the category of religious myth. Its stories are not mere signs or sentiments or symbols of some otherworldly reality. Rather, the actions and the stories represent true history that happened. For example, if Jesus did not give the disciples bread and wine as his body and blood, then the church, the church's sacrament of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, is a pious fiction and not a reality at the foundation of our communion with God 
and among God's people. The story before us today falls into two parts, the last Passover and the Last Supper. Let's look at them in that way. First of all, we have the last Passover. You notice the passage begins with a time marker. It was the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Under the old customs of Judaism, the Paschal lamb would have been be, be prepared the previous Sunday evening. But we know that changed circumstances and increased attendance in Jerusalem had induced slight alterations, justifiable alterations, to the way in which the Passover was celebrated. Here we find, where we find ourselves on the Thursday morning uh, when there were some conversations among the disciples and then between the disciples and Jesus about the observance of the Passover. Jesus had stayed out of public eye. He was in Bethany or in the region of Bethany. And the disciples likely had guessed that he would like to remain there in Bethany for the Passover. But they would have been wrong. Let's read what it says. The disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat Passover? And he told them that as the true Paschal Lamb of God, he was the Lamb of God, John tells us, who would take away the sin of the world, he was to be sacrificed once and for all in the holy city on the day when all the other Passover lambs would also be slain. So that if there were 250,000 Passover lambs slain, as that's a general figure given, on that year there would be 2,001, the Lamb of God. Now these Passover lambs that would be slain on that Good Friday were the types, types of Christ, the antitype. And the antitype was destined to be slain for us and for our salvation. Um, Madonitus said, so that the truth would correspond and the true lamb would be slain on the same day as the typical one, that is the types, the, the earthly lambs. So Jesus then sends two disciples, Peter, John, we're told, elsewhere to Jerusalem, and he appoints a sign for them, a mysterious sign and secret. He tells them as they enter the gate of the city, they would see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now that was unusual. That was a very unusual sight. Mostly it was the women. Women are much better at carrying heavy objects. Uh, then I think on their heads. Uh, and, uh, but on this occasion it was a man. So that would stand out as different. That would get their attention. They were to follow this servant. And when they reached the house from which he came, they were to tell the owner what the master's intention was. The master was going to eat the Passover there with his disciples. Early church fathers wonder whose house this was. Was it the home of Joseph of Arimathea? Was it the home of John Mark himself who's writing this gospel? And I think the, uh, 
The burden of evidence would point, at least, in the direction of John Mark. One day we'll be able to ask him personally if it was his house. And that's where they go, and they find in the upper room, as Jesus had said, a table, and the couches are all in place. So pause there. This is technically not, then, a Passover meal, but a meal eaten by our Lord and his apostles on the previous evening, Thursday, Nisan 13. Now, why would he do that? He is celebrating it as a Passover meal, but not on the day the other Passover meals will be, will be eaten. Matthew tells us in Matthew 26 something of the urgency that Jesus felt. My time is at hand, he says, when he's telling them to go and prepare it. It's as though he, he wants to anticipate the Sabbath, uh, sorry, the, the Passover, uh, with this meal. Elsewhere, he expresses his own sense of, of urgency, his, his sense of desire to eat this Passover with them before he suffered. Luke records his words in full in Luke chapter 22. This is what Jesus says, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will not any more eat thereof until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This Passover meal would be seen as a prophecy that he was to be put to death before the actual Paschal meal on Friday evening. In other words, the people would be celebrating not just the history of Passover, but the people would actually find themselves celebrating the Passover of the real Passover lamb, the lamb of God. I say this would be seen as a prophecy. The Lord's Supper would spell the end of an old chapter and the opening of a new one, a festival of a far deeper and diviner significance, says the great Anglican Austin Farrer. So we read, as we follow the story at dusk, for security reasons, Jesus and the twelve take the walk from Bethany up and over the Mount of Olives, down over the brook Kedron, and up into Jerusalem and to the upper room. There everything is in place for the feast. And soon they've arranged themselves around the table, stretched out as they would be, uh, with leaning on their left elbow, using their right hand, the free hand with which to eat, and slap each other in the back, no doubt, resting on the couches as was the custom, and it still is in some parts of the world, especially nomadic peoples in North Africa. And true to form, the disciples discern, descend into farce. On the one hand, we have Jesus, who, in Austin Farrer's words, was full of divine purpose. He was breathing the pure air of eternity, and eternity was to him, in spite of his mortal investiture, not only present, but he could see eternity. 
And then you have the disciples. Mark doesn't report it. Luke reports it. A dispute arose among the disciples. Which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest? Isn't that just like the thing? Wanting to know who's going to sit behind whom, I mean, sit beside whom at the table. Who will be on the Lord's right hand to be his right hand man? Those kind of things don't happen today, of course. But they happened in Jesus' day. Jesus had already rebuked, denounced, in fact, the Pharisees. Jesus said about them, you love the chief seats. You like to go into the building and go to the top of the line to sit in the important seats, which, by the way, are the back seats in the church. Those are the really important seats. Everybody wants to sit there. These are the most uncomfortable ones up here. So this is what's going on. They, they're descending into farce. And it may very well have been this, which is recorded by Luke, that invites the action that John reports in John chapter 13, where Jesus at the table gets up, you remember? Takes off his outer robe, takes a towel, ties it round his waist, the towel of the, the slave, the menial slave, which, who normally was not a Jew, but a foreigner, who was living around the, the Jerusalem area and earned what meager earnings they did by doing the hard work. Jesus puts the towel around himself. He effectively makes himself the slave of all. He pours water into the basin and he washes the disciples. And this was more than an act of humility, though it was that. It was actually an enacted prophecy. Isaiah's servant of the Lord was in John's mind. If you read John 12 before you read 13, you'll find prophecies from Isaiah are constantly being quoted. In fact, we've just been told that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory when he saw him, and when he saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, filling the whole of the temple and the whole of the universe with his glory. It was Isaiah's servant of the Lord who was to pour out his life to death in order to provide his people with salvation. The pouring out of his life to death points both to the birth, the bath of the new birth, and the promise of ongoing daily cleansing and forgiveness. You remember the story, Jesus comes to Peter. Peter says, no way, Jose, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no fellowship with me, no part in me. Peter, like Peter, puts both feet into it. He says to the Lord, then, Lord, hose me down. Yeah, I mean, just put me into a bath. Pour a big basin of water over me so that I'm, I'm clean all over. Jesus says to him, Peter, you've already had a bath. All of you except one of you has had a bath. What bath is Jesus referring to there? Titus tells us, using the same word, it's the bath of the new birth. 
Judas Iscariot had not had the bath of the new birth. Jesus says to his disciples, you've had the bath of the new birth. You don't need bath again and again and again and again. But you walked over here. Your feet are dusty. You need your feet washed. Maybe you've come to this church today and you're not used to coming to a church like this. Maybe you think we're formal. We are. Maybe you think we're unfriendly. Not all of us. Uh, it really is the luck of the draw which pure you take. Uh, but maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I, you know, I'm a born-again Christian. Why did I have to confess my sins today? That's one of the questions, by the way, that's sent to the minister from time to time. Why do I have to confess my sins if I've already been forgiven? And the answer is this, because you sinned today by thinking that you had not sinned. We all do. We come to church justified but sinners, and we're reminded of that again and again and again. And what we're reminded of is every time we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, I've I've worked in that story from John just to give you color to the story as it runs out here. They were all regenerate, but not all. And here in verse 18 of Mark 14, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And that provokes a response, a heart searching. Is it I? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Meanwhile, the traitor sat through the whole event. He had felt the touch of those kind and gentle hands washing his feet. He'd been refreshed by the cleansing water that washed away the dust and the sand of the journey there. He had seen the sacred head bent over his feet. But for that man, there was no regeneration. There was no wonderment. There was no cleansing. There was no forgiveness. What Jesus says in verse 21, it would be better for that man if he had not been born, says Jesus. And there he was sitting beside him. There he was hearing his every word, unshaken, unmoved, uncaring, unrepentant, boiling with rage, hardening his heart, retreating into his demon possession. He recoils from the door Jesus is opening to him by merely telling him that he knows what he's going to do. It was an invitation for him to renounce his decision to betray the Lord. But he has no room for mercy, no desire for mercy. And his spite and his greed and his treachery won in the end. Meanwhile, the others are shaken. Jesus has said, all of you are going to abandon me. Abandon their master? That one of their own, 
the rock, Peter, would deny him with oaths and curses. That was bad enough. But this was worse. That Judas would betray Jesus. As they thought of that, they shuddered. Their hearts were troubled. They were asking themselves, could I do that? Could I betray Jesus? Could I betray Jesus? They looked at themselves, their lack of nobility of spirit, their failure in love, the depths of their selfishness, the weakness of their faith. Lord, is it I? That was the right question, wasn't it? That's always the question we should ask. Here's the wrong question. Lord, is it him? Lord, is it her? Lord, is it them? Those are the wrong questions. There's no humility or self-awareness in that question. Well, so much for the last Passover. What about the Last Supper? Now, what strikes us as Christians is the fact that these other details surround the establishment at this supper of the sacrament of the Eucharist. The word Eucharist means thanksgiving. There are four accounts that we have of the establishment of this sacrament in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in the Apostle Paul. In enacting this sacrament, Jesus is exhibiting the actual saving events in a sacramental way. Those events will play out in real time as night approaches, Friday begins, and will be done by three in the afternoon of Friday. In each of those accounts, those four accounts, the main elements are the same. Paul says they were received from the Lord, and that's what's reported here. They are constant. They are consistent. Here they are. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I think Farrer is right to remark, never since that solemn evening has the church ceased to observe the commandment of her Lord. Ever since that day, from age to age, has this blessed and holy sacrament been an exhibition of the death of Christ a strengthening and refreshing of the soul by the body and blood as the body is refreshed and strengthened by the bread and wine. What was the first thing we did as a church? We opened up early, but even before we opened up early, what was the first thing we did as a church? 
One Saturday, Gavin and I went to five different parks, and we had the Lord's Supper with groups of 25 or more people. And we kept doing that. We went to major parks. We had a veritable uh, cathedral over in New Jersey where we did that. And we did that for a long time. Why? Why did we have communion? Because the Word of God through the sac- and the sacrament is what nourishes the soul of the church. Now look at the language that's used. Of the supper, there's the language of covenant that takes us back to Exodus chapter 24 and links Jesus' action with Moses' action. In the language of Mark, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many Luke puts it like this, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And our our, our attention is caught by these two expressions, poured out and for many. I mentioned the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord's great introduction to us in the Old Testament is in Isaiah. And Isaiah 53 verse 12 reads like this. Listen carefully. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see the connection with the supper, between the supper and the sacrifice of the cross. The water he poured out to wash their feet. The actual purpose of the washing was to clean away the sin of many. So this then is Jesus giving us the theological rationale for his passion using these liturgical and sacramental actions. He's exhibiting, to use Calvin's word, he's exhibiting his passion, his death. There you have blood There you have bread. There you have what represents the blood of Jesus and the flesh of Jesus. They're separated. You separate the blood from a body, the body's dead. Violent death in this case. Exhibiting his passion, making his passion present to all of us who gather at the Lord's table. Present. We are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. We were there when they crucified my Lord. I have been crucified with Christ. Isn't that the language we find? Or in Pauline language, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break is it not the participation in the body of Christ? The older versions use the word communion. That might help you. We're united to Christ by faith. We're united to Him by faith. 
joined to him so that when he dies, we die with him. When he rises, we rise with him. Crucified with Christ, raised with him, we come into new life. Union with Christ. And in the Eucharist, we have communion with Christ. Now, John's gospel doesn't mention the actual formally formality of the Lord's Supper, but it gives us Christ's theological exposition of the Lord's Supper, something John Calvin and the first Reformers took for granted. Uh, Calvin says, the flesh of Christ is the flesh of the eternal Word of God, who is the fountain of life. He conveys to us that life which dwells in His divinity. By partaking of Him, we are fed unto immortality, eternal life. Jesus said, John 6, I am the bread of life come down from heaven, and the bread which I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. From this, it follows in verse 55, For my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in them. Verse 58, This is the bread that came down from heaven. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, one thing we need to keep in mind is that when Christ died and rose, He then ascended to heaven. Where is Jesus today? In His human nature? He's in heaven as God. He's everywhere, of course. But in His human nature, His human nature, you, in your body, can only be in one place at one time. Two of the great thinkers of the church, John Calvin and Thomas Aquinas, draw attention to this very fact. Aquinas says, where is the body of Jesus, properly considered? Where is the body of Jesus? He says, he has ascended, it is in heaven. That's where it remains. You can't bring it down from heaven. He remains in heaven. John Calvin picks this up, although I don't think he knew he was picking it up from Aquinas, because I don't think he'd read Thomas Aquinas. But he says exactly the same thing. In fact, they both seem as if they're listening to each other, probably in the Holy Spirit listening to each other on this particular topic. And he emphasizes the flesh of Christ, that the flesh of Christ, the resurrected flesh of Christ is in heaven. But Calvin in his Institutes goes on to say this. The flesh of Christ is like an inexhaustible fountain that pours into us the life springing forth from the Godhead into itself. Now, who does not see that communion in Christ's flesh and blood is necessary for all who aspire to heavenly life? John Calvin, like St. Augustine, the 17th century Framers even of the, world, of the Westminster Confession of Faith saw sacramental theology built on the doctrine of signs. Signs and things signified. You can distinguish them, but you can't separate them. A sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible 
grace. Apply that to the sacrament. And all who in faith embrace the promises there offered receive Christ spiritually with his spiritual gifts. That's John Calvin. In other words, the sacrament is not just a symbol. This is clearer in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, verse and number 6, when it's talking about baptism. The grace promised is not only offered, but is really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost. Go away and munch on that for lunch. But get this, believers are united to Christ. Baptism is connected to our initial union with Christ. The sacrament of the Eucharist is connected with the believer's ongoing communion with Christ. In the Lord's Supper, the believer is nourished and sustained, and her communion and union with Christ is strengthened and increased. Matheson of Reformation Bible College uh, that used to be in R.C. Sproul's place. St. Augustine put it like this, In the Eucharist, there is both what one sees, what do you see, bread and wine, and what one believes. What one sees, what one believes. The body of Christ resurrected and ascended can only be in one location, heaven. The body of Christ as the fount of life for the believer is conveyed to us in communion sacramentally and really. I don't know who it is who uses an illustration which is a bad illustration. Any illustration you use about God is always a bad one and to be not to be desired for the children here. I'll, I'll use an illustration uh, of how does electricity come to you? It comes from a source, and it's delivered to your plug or to your device by a wire. At communion, the bread and the wine are the instruments God uses to deliver what the word that you hear says, the word is the source of power, the Word is the Word of God. This is my body. This is my blood. We saw that, for, that in John's account of the implications of the supper. And uh, may we listen closely. Well, the, the whole thing ends then after this discussion of the supper, and I've extended it just to kind of, I used it really as an illustration of the fact that Jesus was doing more for these men than just giving them something to eat. This was more than that. It was the beginning of this great new Passover feast, the Paschal Feast of the Church, the Lord's Supper. Well, then you have this last little vignette. When they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. 
That cost, uh, must have caused them some anguish to hear that. This is what Jesus knew about these people, by the way. This is what Jesus knew about these people to whom he just offered the sacrament of the supper. He knew what we were like. He knew how fickle we are, how easily distracted we are, how often we're drawn away from Christ to other things. He knows you, me, thoroughly. There's nothing about you or me he does not know. These twelve were people whom Jesus had known from before the foundation of the world. He had chosen them before the foundation of the world. He had called them specifically to himself. He had loved them, loved them with an everlasting love. He loved them to the very end, John says. He loved them as far as he could love them. And yet, this is what they were going to do. Here's the reality. He knows you. He knows me. He's known you and me from before the foundation of the world. He knows what we're like. He knows every twist in your temperament, sometimes how twisted your temperament is. He, he knows your weaknesses, your strengths, your failures, your successes. All of that was ordained before the foundation of the world. When he chose you, he knew what he was getting when he chose you. And he called you. He called you to himself. He gave you the gift of faith to embrace him yourself. And he has loved you. He has loved you all along the way, all along the times you've been ignoring him. All the times sometimes you've been distracted from him. He has loved you. He has never stopped loving you. And yet he knows you. And what we learn from this story is that he never, he never casts off his believing people. Judas is different. Judas is not a believer. Jesus does not cast off his people. There's an application, I think, to the church here. We are tempted, aren't we, to write off one another. Well, in these days, when everybody's angry with everybody in our society... It's very easy for that anger with everybody. You just need to look at people sideways and they're angry with you for some reason or another. For that stuff to kind of creep into the church. And when it creeps into the church, what do we do? Well, we, we accuse people. We, we, we jump to a conclusion. Somebody does something, we jump to the conclusion that they're left, right, horizontal, vertical, or something's wrong with them that we don't like. And, and we label them. That's what we do, isn't it? We're very quick to do that. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is long-suffering with these, these men who are going to deny him. They're all going to deny him and disappear. On resurrection morning, the women have to go and look for them. They're nowhere to be found. Jesus knows us. But he never gives up on us. I had the privilege of uh, ministering to the family of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones when I was in London. Martin Lloyd-Jones had been a medical doctor himself. And in his preaching, often used to teach in a way that, that uh, 
showed the way that he had been educated, the, the Socratic method of questions, and asking questions, and getting people to ask questions of themselves. When you go to the doctor, the doctor asks you all these questions about things you've never thought of, and the list goes on and on and on and on. You wonder why on earth do they need to know that, 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 that. And, and of course, they need to know that because they're thinking through what's wrong with you. And they have to find out, well, if it's this, this, and this, but not that. I mean, all that that they have to do, I mean, they, they do deserve some praise from us for all of that hard work that they do. But here's the thing. In this story, the, the church, let me back up, the church is a hospital. This is Lloyd-Jones' view. He said, whenever people come to church on a Sunday, we're all sick because <laughs> we're all sinners. And we're all sick to some degree or another. Some of us are really, really, really sick. Some aren't so sick, but still sick. What is the medicine that God prescribes for us in our sickness? Well, it's the Word of God, isn't it? It's the Word of God. The Word of God can heal, restore, forgive. But, you know, I know people, I'm not going to identify anyone in particular, but maybe very close to me here, who can go to the doctor and you ask them when they come back, what did she say? Oh, I don't really know what she said. You mean you weren't listening to what she said? I get this myself, by the way. So it's just so as it's turned back on me and not on anyone in particular that might be in the congregation today. If you want to know what to do, you've got to listen to what the doctor prescribes. Do you know that Jesus had already given them medicine for the despair that they felt? Where's the medicine? After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter starts to talk. What does Peter say? Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus says, I'll tell you this this very night before the rooster crows twice. You will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, I must, if I, I, I will die for you, but I will not deny you. And they all said the same. What are they thinking about? They're all thinking about the problem. They're thinking about the fact that Jesus has said that they're all going to fall away. But the solution to their problem, the answer to their fears... <laughs> is right there in the middle of the passage. When I am raised, I will go to Galilee, <laughs> and I will join you there. If only you see that. If only you'd capture that word. Listen to what I'm saying to you, Jesus says. Maybe this morning you're in church and you need to hear what Jesus is saying to you. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're sick not just spiritually. Maybe you're actually sick physically. Maybe you, you fear death. Maybe you fear what's ahead of you. Well, listen to Jesus. When I am raised, he has been raised. And he will raise you from the dead. Listen to him. This is maybe God's word 
precisely for you this morning, that you might hear him, believe him, and rest on him. Rest on him for your salvation, your sanity, your security, your satisfaction. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that this morning you would be kind to us. You love to be kind. That you would be merciful to us. Oh, you love to be merciful. In fact, you love to be merciful more than anything else you do. And so we ask, Lord, that you be merciful to us. Forgive our sins. Show Christ to us. Make him real to us, we pray. In his strong name. Amen.